Thank you, Laura Lee. What a wonderful prayer. I hope that you can echo that prayer that Laura Lee just sang, that uh, you'd be praying that to your, your God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he as a gentle shepherd would lead you uh, until, you, until he brings you home. I know as your pastor, that is my prayer for you as she was singing it. Um, that he would do in your lives what you cannot do for yourself. Um, that he would do in your lives what I cannot do for you. Uh, as men and, and fathers and husbands and wives and moms. Uh, grandparents, young people. And by the way, young people, uh, Laura Lee, you know, she's in the youth group. And, uh, and I love it when our young people serve the body and, and labor within the church and love us. So thank you, Laura Lee, for loving us and working on that and singing, us, uh, singing to us this morning. We sang uh, wonderful songs this morning. I have to say they go really well with the message out of John chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. We sang uh, hymn number one, or 386, which, which is, you don't have to turn there, but entitled Without Him. And it says, without him I could do nothing, without him I'd surely fail. Without him I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. Can you remember, at, can you remember times in your life where that was you, just kind of going through life? And you were, you were alive physically, but really didn't have much direction. Just kind of whatever happened that day, that's just kind of where you went. And the refrain says, Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Do not turn him away. O oh, Jesus, O oh, Jesus, without him, how lost I would be. And, uh, and we, of course, we sang the second verse as well. But my question to you this morning is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Um, familiar name. I don't know too many people who've never heard the name of Jesus, but I fear there are many, many people who don't know Jesus, who don't know who he is. Sometimes in paintings, Jesus as portray, is portrayed as uh, effeminate or weak. Um, but I submit to you, Jesus, even as a man, was anything but weak. Uh, he would have been a strong, hardworking man. Um, and yet, he was compassionate. And he was love and truth and merciful and and uh, all of those things. So, another hymn we sang this morning is, He Leadeth Me, and the refrain to He Leadeth Me says, He leadeth me, He leadeth me, by His own hand He leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by His hand He leadeth me. Do you, can you sense uh, Jesus leading you through life? Can you sense it? Do you, do, you know, do you know that? Do you sense His Spirit leading you? Do you ever find yourself in conflict with him, where your flesh is going one way and you can sense him leading you another way? Do you, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you, have you experienced that? You're all looking at me. I would like to see some head movement one way or the other. Have you, can you experience that? And don't just nod your head for no reason, but I want you to think it through, you know. Uh, do you know him? Because if he lives within you, he is leading you. He is leading he has a purpose. He has a goal in mind for your life. He is not without a will and a desire for you. It's not just, well, whatever, whatever you decide is okay. That's not how 
God works. And Jesus is God. And so sometimes we're at odds with him. And discouragement oftentimes will overflood our soul when we are at odds with Jesus who lives within us. Sometimes depression will find its way into the life of a believer when he's at odds with Jesus. He's saying no to Jesus in his, in his daily walk. Can you sense him leading you? There are times in our lives where, while he is always leading us, there are times in our lives where when we're going through different times in life we, where we don't sense his leading. We almost at times feel alone. Do you ever find at times in your life where you not only do you feel alone, but you have this sense that you don't have what it takes for what you're going through, for life? You ever, you ever feel that way? Now, the truth is, in and of ourselves, we don't have what it takes. But those of us who are born again, the Lord Jesus Christ lives within us by his Holy Spirit. And we would all, who are saved, say, well, of course, Pastor Ferguson, I know that. The Lord Jesus Christ lives within me, and, and he is able. He's able to deliver me. Um, but even knowing that doctrinal truth, do you ever find at times in your life where, okay, I know Jesus is living within me, but I still don't feel, I don't sense his leading. I don't, I don't feel like I have, even with him, what it takes for life. And um, we're going to look at a passage in John this morning where Jesus really teaches a group of men about who he is. And I have to say, there's no narrative in this, these next 30 verses. There's no story. Uh, there's no miracle recorded for us. There's no Water turned to wine. He doesn't cleanse the temple in these next 30 verses. Um, he doesn't uh, meet a man, a father, a broken-hearted father who's walked 20 hills or 20, 20 miles uphill from Capernaum to Cana because he's broken-hearted and devastated because he has a small boy who's dying. Um, there isn't anything like that in these 30 verses. But what's in these 30 verses is Jesus teaching who he is. He's teaching others who he is. Sometimes, and I mentioned this on Wednesday night, sometimes we come to the Bible, sometimes we gather ourselves in a church service, and we kind of have the attitude, you know, Pastor, I really need you to give me something good today. Don't nod your head, don't move a muscle, okay? Don't twitch. Sometimes we come that way. You know, Pastor, I just need you to give me something that's helpful for me. The truth is, everything in this book is helpful. Now, I suppose I can mess it up, but everything in this book is helpful. Sometimes we come to the Word of God and we have the attitude of, you know, I just need to find something to help me today. I said this on Wednesday. The greatest need of humanity, uh, and the greatest need even within a local church, is not just to find a principle or an outline or a quote to help us for the day. The greatest need of mankind is to know the person of the Bible. 
I don't think we understand what I just said. Do you remember how in the beginning of John chapter 1, John, the penman of John, said, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, born of Mary, the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger, lived 33 years, sinless years, died on a cross, gave his life as a sacrifice for you and for me and for the world. Jesus is the person of the Bible. And Jesus came so that we would have life in him. And without him, there is no life at all. And I don't mean any life. No life. I'm not just talking about spiritual life or eternal life. I'm talking about physical life, biological life. There is no life without the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, my question is, do you know him? Because there are some of us in this room, many of us in this room, who are born again. We have been, we're the recipients of everlasting life through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit. We're saved from death and hell to come, and yet... We are void of life. Living life on a daily basis with the joy of the Lord. We are are alive and yet living almost as dead men. Defeated, discouraged, despair. And who we need, it's not a principle or a thought. It's not something to get our goosebumps up. We need the person of the Bible, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, as he was praying, and he had gotten alone to pray, and his disciples were with him, he asked his disciples a question. He said, Whom say the people that I am? And they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And this interesting question Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who are people saying that I am? And some say, well, you're prophets, you're John the Baptist. Um, and then he asked them this question, he says, but whom say ye that I am? And in the gospel, according to Luke, in verse 20 of chapter 9, Peter answers Jesus and he says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah, you are God, you are the Son of God. And so my question to you this morning is, who do you believe that Jesus is? Who do you believe that he is? A good teacher? A miracle worker? A good person? Someone who died for the sins of the whole world? Someone who rose again? Who do you believe that Jesus is? And more importantly, who did Jesus say that he was? Look at our text. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 1 because I want you to have the flow as we make our way through. We're not going to look at all these verses, but I'm going to read all the way down through verse number 24. So uh, we'll see the narrative, and then we'll get into the doctrine that Jesus gives us. Verse 1 of John chapter 5 says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So that's the setting. He's in Jerusalem, bustling place, most famous city on the face of the earth. Verse 2, it says, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, A pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, which means house of mercy, 
having five porches, so it's a big place, and these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, that is, crippled people, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity. Thirty and eight years, this man's been crippled. Thirty-eight years, verse six. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And he's speaking directly to the matter. Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, talking to Jesus, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. While I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Just that statement. This is how powerful Jesus is. Verse 9, and immediately the man was made whole. He'd been crippled for 38 years, and in a moment, Jesus makes him whole. And he took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, this is important, and it has to do with what Jesus will be addressing today in our study. The Sabbath would have been on a Saturday in those days, and the Sabbath was a day that God had set aside for his people as a day of rest. It was a gift from God to his people. Sometimes we look at rules or even laws as oppressive, but you know that God gives them many times as out of grace and mercy and out of love. It was a gift so that people could rest, so they could be rejuvenated, okay? So, but it was the Sabbath, and, and they weren't to do normal, and this was what God had said, you weren't to do normal, everyday work on the Sabbath. He gave a law so people would get some rest. Um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the Jews in this day had added many, many extra-biblical layers to what Jesus had said, okay? And that's where the conflict happens here in verse 10. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured. They talked to this man who's been cured of 38 years of being paralyzed. It is the Sabbath day, they say to him. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed, you think they might have been happy for the guy, you know? 38 years as a cripple, you can walk. Hey, it, congratulations. But no, you're not obeying our laws. That's what they said. Okay, verse 11. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. I just did what he told me to do. Verse 12, Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Where is the guy who healed you? Verse 13, and he that was healed wist not who it was. He didn't know who healed him, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. There's a lot of people there. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee, uh, come unto thee. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore, therefore did the Jews persecute That word means to chase down, to run down, to pursue with hostility. They persecuted Jesus and sought to slay him. Why? Look at the end of verse 16. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Because he had broken their rules. Verse 17, and this comes to our text, verses 17 through verse 24. 
But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So you have your rules about the Sabbath. But I just want you to know that my Father and I are still working, even when it's the Sabbath, even when you have your little laws. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They got the message. Verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son, notice the capital S, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, Jesus says, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now, we get to the end of that text, just seven verses, and um, did your eyes glaze over it all when Jesus began to teach? I hope not, but he uses some words. Was it easy to understand what he was saying? Did it just kind of jump off the page at you, and you were like, wow, your blesser was blessed in a moment. I, uh, I want to remind you, as we look at these verses, and these are marvelous truths, and they are very, very practical. Who Christ is, is extremely practical. Because if, he, if we don't know who he is, then we are going to find ourselves deficient in the area of faith and confidence and trust in him to help us through life. We're going to see ourselves as the victim. We're going to see ourselves as vulnerable. We're going to see ourselves as hopeless and without help going through life if we don't know the person of the Bible. Okay. So I'm, I'm emphasizing this up front because truly when I read through this passage, I thought there's no narrative. There's no healing. We all love to hear about that father walking uphill to get Jesus. And then he uses that term, my little boy, my little child. It's like it tugs at our heartstring. We love to hear that. We like that. We also, though, must know the person who does the miracles. Otherwise, they're just stories, and it's not real to you and me. Okay, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word. Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate Jesus Christ to every heart in this room that is humble before you now. Father, I know that you're not going to illuminate your word or these truths to hard hearts. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts in the days to come that are hard. 
But I pray for those in this room whose hearts are tender, whose hearts are longing for you, whose, whose hearts genuinely want to know the truth. Not perfect, but whose hearts genuinely want to know the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. Father, may you reveal your Son to us by your Spirit, I pray. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for sake of time, we're only going to look here at, the, at these seven verses. Jesus talks, he begins talking to them in verse 17. He talks all the way down through verse 47. Okay, We're not going to uh, tackle 30 verses of Jesus' revelation to these people about himself. I, I notice, first of all, uh, that uh, I'm going to notice several statements that Jesus makes about himself as he's revealing who he is to these men who don't believe in him, by the way. They don't believe in him. What have we learned about these people that he's talking to? They're Jewish religious leaders. They hate Jesus. And, you know, people today, like them, hate Jesus. They resent the idea that he is God. They resent the idea that he is the authority. And uh, these men certainly resented that. But I, I want to notice several statements that Jesus makes to them about himself. First of all... Jesus says that he is equal with the Father in his nature or in his essence. I don't use that term often, his essence. Um, but it has the idea of his quality or his character, who he is, who he is. Jesus is saying in verse number 17 and 18, and we'll look at these in just a moment, he's saying that he is equal with the Father in his essence, in who he is. Look at verse number 17. But Jesus answered them, and he says, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So, by the way, Jesus, and this is important, this is what Jesus is getting to, Jesus is not less than God. We think of the Trinity, our church's name, Trinity Baptist Church, and who's involved in the Trinity? We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And don't answer, I'm not setting you up, but is the Spirit less than the Son? Is the Spirit less than the Father? Is the Son less than the Spirit? Is the Son less than the Father? And the answer is no. Uh, Jesus is not less, and he was not less than the Father. And so, as soon as Jesus refers, in verse number 17, to God as, he says, my Father the Jewish leadership would have lost it. Okay, They would have been furious. <laughs> they would have hated him all the more. No Jew, no Jew would have called God their father. Because in their view, a son shares the very same nature as his father. I've talked to you about this before. I look at some of you uh, dads, and I, I look at your sons, and, and I see you and your son. And, uh, and I've told you before, if you want to know me, just watch my boys, okay? And, and even my daughters, to a degree, you'll see me and them too. But watch my sons, and you get to know me real well, okay? Um, I said to one of my parents this week, I said uh, uh, something about, I know you better than you think I know you because I'm a lot like you, okay? And uh, that's kind of scary for us as moms and dads because we, our children, they do get to know us as they get older because they can see, we can see our parents in us. And so the, this was very common teaching in the Jewish 
uh, community, they really believe that a son shares the same nature as his father. And so Jesus was saying, I have the same qualities, I have the same character, I have the same essence, I have the same nature as God. Look at verse number 18. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. (laughs) Because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So first they were upset because he healed a guy on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, and broke their man-made laws. Now they're furious because Jesus, uh, and, and I don't know what you have in your mind when I say Jesus, but there's this Galilean man dressed in Galilean gar- garments with Galilean sandals and some Jerusalem dust on his dirty, probably filthy feet, talking in a Galilean dialect. He's a carpenter, which in the Middle East in that area would, would have been a stone mason. So his hands are gnarled and worn. This is a strong man, okay? But he's just a man. And he's standing there talking to the religious leaders, and they're upset. Why did you heal a man on the Sabbath day? You're breaking our laws. And they were upset because he's rebelling against them and their religious system, their man-centered system, and it was that. And this Galilean man looks at them and basically claims, in no uncertain terms, that he is the Son of God. And they're angry. (laughs) And that's an understatement. And they hate him. And they want him dead. You know, they got Jesus' message. And they ferociously hated our Lord and Savior. Why? Because they were opposing them. Or he was opposing them. How was Jesus opposing them? Well, he was breaking their man-made laws by healing somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus says at the beginning, or the end of verse number 17, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. In other words, Jesus was saying, The father doesn't pay attention to the Sabbath. The Father doesn't rest on the Sabbath, and I don't either because I'm the same as him. Now, back in Genesis, the, where creation is, happens, the creation of the world is recorded for us, did God rest on the Sabbath or on the seventh day? Did he rest, yes or no? The Bible says he rested, but why did he rest? He rested as an example for you and for me. Does God need rest? Does God rest any day of the week or any moment of any day of the week today? No. And by the way, you and, all, you and I should all be very thankful that God doesn't take any days off. Okay. His consolation is present. His comfort is present. His encouragement. His strength and his power is available. It isn't We're not without him for a day. He still holds the world uh, by his word in its orbit. Okay, And, And everything that he has created is still held together because God is still at work seven days a week, every day of the year, every moment of every day. God does not rest. And Jesus looks at these men, and they're all upset. You healed a man on the on the Sabbath. And uh, we, we looked at it last week, I believe it was, or the week before, about how Jesus had, had told them that the Sabbath, man was not 
created for the Sabbath. Man was not created to be under this burden that these men had put on the Sabbath and upon everybody around in that area at that time. Man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created by God for man so that man could have a break. And Jesus had also said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he was above it. He was above it. So Genesis says that God rested, but only as a pattern for you and for me. And I'm thankful that God doesn't take any days off. The Jewish leadership, though, completely understood what Jesus was saying because he was declaring himself to be equal with God. Um, I won't pause here for very long just to say this. When you, there are times in my life as I'm going through the week where I will pray and I will ask God in the name of Jesus for his help. And I'm so glad that I am talking to someone, the person who has saved me, who is equal with God in his essence. His spirit who lives within me. The Bible says the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, this is very important. He is, I'm not getting something second rate. I'm not getting some effeminate help, helper, okay, who is kind but doesn't have what it takes for life. Jesus is the same as God. He goes on. He goes on. Look at verse number 19, and Jesus says that he's equal with the Father in his works, what he does. So he's equal with God, equal with the Father in his essence. He's also equal with the Father in his works. Look at verse number 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, phileo, love, there, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. In other words, in verse number 19, the middle part where he says, the Son can do nothing of himself. In other words, Jesus is saying he didn't operate independently from God. Every one of us in this room at times in our lives operates independently from God. It's called going our own way, doing our own thing. Okay? Every one of us at times, at moments in our lives, operates independently from God. We couldn't possibly blame God for everything that, that happens uh, or that everything that we do. Okay? I can't, my kids can't look at me and, and say, well, yeah, God made me do that. Okay? Although, at times, as husbands, we'd like to be able to say that to our wives. Well, God made me buy this car, honey. I, I'm sorry. Um, or some of you wives would like to blame God for what you bring home sometimes, too. You know, But God didn't make you do that or buy that. So, have you ever known someone who only ever did what God did? Have you ever known anybody like that? Are you married to that person? They only ever do what God does. Wouldn't that be great? Could be a little convicting to live with that person. Uh, what, what would you say, ladies, if, if your husband looked at you and said, whatever God does, I do, and that's all I ever do. I only do what God does. I do nothing else other than what God does. You'd say, whatever. I don't believe that. I know better than that. 
You might not call them honey. So, so what Jesus is saying here, the son can do nothing of himself. This is an outrageous claim. Who says this? I only ever always do what God does. No one says this. No one does this. But there's this Galilean carpenter standing here in Jerusalem saying this. And he's Jesus. And they hate him. So this is an outrageous claim. But here stands this Galilean carpenter, this stonemason, in his Galilean attire, his sandal-shod feet, filthy, in Jerusalem, and he's making this claim. And in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders, they can't stand him. He's telling them that he is of the same nature as the eternal God. And not only that, but that he only does what his Father does. Jesus is claiming to have perfect unity with the Father. And it's a love-based unity. Look at verse number 20. In the beginning part, it says, For the Father loveth the Son. In other words, the Father's love for his Son. The Father's love. And I'm talking about God the Father and God the Son. And this is the truth here. The Father's love for his Son is so perfect that he has no secrets with his son. He has no secrets. His son knows everything. They don't keep secrets from one another. God the Father doesn't have more knowledge or more wisdom or more understanding than God the Son. Some of us in this room have secrets from one another. And I don't want to know everything. Neither do you. But God the Father and God the Son have such a unity. There are no secrets that they keep from one another. The Father tells the Son everything. He has no secret from the Son. The Son knows everything already. He's God. There are no secrets within the Trinity. The Father doesn't know anything. The Son doesn't know. He doesn't desire something. The Father doesn't desire something that Jesus, the Son, doesn't desire. They are perfect in harmony, doing the work of God together as one. Three persons, one God. So Christ was, and he is, equal to God in works. Now, they were probably thinking, well, well, God has done greater works than we've seen you do. Okay, you've made this lame man of 38 years stand up and walk, and that's pretty impressive, but i got to tell you, Jesus, God the Father's done more impressive things than you've done. And that's had to be running through their mind at some, at some point. Um, look at verse number 20, the latter statement in verse number 20. It says, And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. And what are these greater works that Jesus is going to show to uh, these particular men? Well, look at verses 21 and verse 22. For as the Father raiseth up the dead... And quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. So just like the Father gives life, he says, I'm going to give life. Verse 22, for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And what is he talking about here? When he says, and they're thinking, the Father's done greater things than you've done. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm equal with my Father in works. And they're, they're disagreeing with him. And, and Jesus says, well, there are some things that are going to happen in the future that will prove to you 
that the works that I do are equal with the works that my Father has done. Well, he's talking about the final resurrection. He's talking about a final judgment, a day yet to come in the future. There are some people who just don't believe Jesus is equal with God, but there's coming a day when those very people who deny Jesus are going to stand before Jesus Christ himself at a judgment. And they're going to be raised from the dead by Jesus Christ, and they're going to stand before him at their eternal, uh, at, at their judgment. And, and he is going to be the eternal judge who's presiding over them. So there are some today who would say, you know what, I don't really care. I really don't believe that Jesus is God. I think this is all a hoax. I don't believe. So what are you going to do to me? Well, I'm not going to do anything to you. But you are going to stand before the judge who you didn't believe in. You will stand before the, the one who you rejected. These very, these very men who hated Jesus and wanted him dead are going to stand before Jesus as the judge. And he's going to re- resurrect their bodies from the dead, the lost, to stand before him. And he's telling them, The works that my Father does, you're right, they're impressive, but I want you to know something. The works that I'm going to do are equally as impressive. Our works are one and the same. Philippians 2 and verse 9 says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He is equal with God in his works. Not long ago, I heard a statement made about there's coming a day when every knee is going to bow before Jesus. In this particular statement, they also included Satan. And it's not what Philippians is talking about necessarily, but it does say, Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. So it could include him. And the statement was made, he's never bowed before, or it hasn't been a long time since he's bowed. But there's coming a day where even the great deceiver, the rebel of all all the earth, the, the hater of God is going to bow before the Lord. And he will go where Jesus sends him i got to tell you, that makes me kind of happy. As a pastor, I watch his influence ravage the church at times and hurt marriages and hurt children. There's coming a day where even he's going to have to bow the knee before the Lord, my Lord and my Savior and my God. Jesus goes on in verse 21, he says that he's equal with the Father in his power. So we see that he's equal with the Father in his essence. He's equal with the Father in his works. And then thirdly, he's equal with the Father in his power. Look at verse 21. It says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. There's a lot of ways to talk about power. Okay, And Jesus is saying here that he's equal with the Father in his power. There's a lot of different ways we could talk about power and what's powerful. We use the word power for all kinds of things, I think. We, we talk about cars and we say, hey, that's powerful. If I hear a car, a certain engine of certain type, I will turn my head to look to see 
the power, where the power is coming from. You know, I like things that are powerful, most of us do. But the, the power that Jesus has is the ultimate power. Now, what is the ultimate power in the universe, I might ask? In verse 21, it says, The Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. What's the ultimate power? And I submit to you that the ultimate power is the ability to give life. The ability to give life. The ultimate power is the ability to give life. The Father gives life. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, it says, For in him, in God, the Father, we live and move and have our being. So without him, we don't live, we don't move, we don't have our being. But Jesus is equal to the Father in giving life. Look back to John chapter 1. Just back a couple pages in your Bible, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. Capital W there, talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we, we talked about this. won't spend much time here. Without Jesus, there is nothing. There is nothing. Verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You can turn back to our text in chapter 5, but this is the ultimate power, the ability to create out of nothing. Was the Latin term ex nihilo, out of nothing. I have the hardest time uh, creating things out of something. Give me the parts, and I still have a hard time putting it together sometimes. With the parts, with directions. I was uh, putting in an electric panel in my barn here this past week. And I, you know, I got it together, and it wasn't working. You know, the power was on. The, the juices were flowing. The lights still weren't coming on. And I knew, I've got a problem. Be careful what I touch. Now, don't worry, it's all working now. And it has for several days now, or a couple days. So we're good to go. But even with directions, YouTube videos, the right tools... I have a hard time getting some things done, okay? And so do you, right? Certain things. Every one of us has a hard time with certain things. Um, you know, you can rewire a whole house, but how to enter uh, someone's information in your iPhone, you don't know. You know, what's the problem? Okay, and vice versa. So uh, we all struggle with those things. Jesus is a creator. He has the power of the Father uh, it is equal. He's equal with the Father in giving life. This is the ultimate power. Jesus is the giver of life. You know, you and I live, we live because we were given life. 1979, Marquette, Michigan. Seth Ferguson was born into this world. Look out, mom and dad. You know? But my mom and dad gave me life in, to that degree. And their parents, mom in Ohio, dad in Detroit, their parents gave them life. And your parents gave you life. Um, so we had a starting point. Uh, the Bible tells us that the triune God, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they have no beginning. We all have a beginning. It goes back to a certain point in time. But, but, the, but God, who is the eternal life, and he created and gave life to everything, he is the giver of life. He had no beginning. You know, we Michiganders love spring because during... Winter, it's like all life has left, you know. You see the snow, and it blends in with the sky. (laughs) 
And then there are these black trees. And we're all thankful for the evergreens, you know, and that's it. You know, get out there and fresh air and your nose hairs freeze, right? It's just cold and dreary and it's like we're ready for life, for spring, that smell, the wet, muddy yards. Bring it on, you know. We just can't wait. It's like life again. Uh, We long for life. Well, God is the giver of life. He's the giver of life in the world of biology. We look around. There's a lot of living people in this room. I think everybody's living as best I can tell. Some of you don't look like you're living. But I can say that because you didn't hear me say that because you're asleep. Human beings, animals, right? There's life there. Animate, living creation. God is the creator of that. But there's even life within objects that don't seem to be alive. Like this pulpit. Is this pulpit alive? Don't answer. Is this building alive? Is this floor alive? This unmovable building might not seem to be alive at all, but within these inanimate objects are complex atoms driven by eternal energy. And I have to read this because I can't remember it. Driven by internal energy moving at incalculable speeds within this. God is the giver of life. Jesus Christ is the giver of life. Now, he's not only the giver of the life in biology or inanimate objects that don't seem to be alive, but he's also the giver of spiritual life, and that's what he's getting to in verse 21. Spiritual life that we cannot see in each other. We don't see the Spirit in one another, but we can see the result of the Spirit in one another. When I watch you go through life, and for many of you, I've watched you for many years since I was a young boy, 1987, my parents moved to Flushing, Michigan, and we became members of Trinity Baptist Church. I was eight years old, and for many years, I've watched you, many of you. I, haven't, I never saw the Spirit in you, but I've seen the result of the Spirit of God in you for all these years. I've watched you persevere in your love for the Lord. I've watched you persevere in your marriages. And now, as I've grown older in my life, I realize that you, to get to this point in your life, you've had to make many decisions over and over and over again to walk in the Spirit and let Him have His way in your life, or you would not be where you are today. It's as simple as that. So I can see the result of the life that Jesus Christ has given to you. And it is a miracle. You know, all of life, whether... what seems to be inanimate or life that's biological or life that's spiritual. It's all from God who made everything or it's from Christ, the Word. And we're told in our passage that without Him was not anything made that was made, looking back to chapter 1. And can you imagine this Galilean carpenter standing here saying that he's the one who's given life to the whole universe? That's what he's saying. That life is only given at His will. Jesus has the power to make something exist that didn't already exist. He has the power to give life. And in John 11, in verse 25, Jesus said unto him, or said unto her, speaking about in the context of Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Most all of us in this room like a great comeback. If you like athletics, you like a comeback. The underdog, fighting back, clawing their way back to finally 
obtain the victory. Well, that would have been the, one of the biggest comebacks ever. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus Christ said, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And you know what? There are some of us in this room, and you're spiritually alive. Jesus Christ lives within you, and you're going through life, and boy, it seems like it's over in some ways. And I want to remind you, as we look at this, this is a very doctrinally rich passage. There is no tearjerker here, okay? So let your life be the tearjerker for you, if that helps you. But don't forget to connect the doctrinal truths who Jesus is. He is the giver of life. He is God. He is not less than. He is not insufficient. He is not insufficient for your need or for my need. He is the living God. Now, we're halfway through the message, and I'm going to stop there, okay? And all God's people say what? Amen. Amen. All right, good. Let's take our hymnals, shall we? And let's turn in our hymnals to hymn number 23, and let's sing Worthy of Worship. We're going to sing three stanzas. Let's all stand to our feet, and uh, we'll sing all three stanzas of Worthy of Worship. You know, there's so many things in our lives that we give so much attention to and so much thought to. But there is only one person who is worthy of worship, and he is the one who lives within us. Let's sing together hymn number 23, Worthy of Worship, and we'll be dismissed.